Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey friends, welcome to another edition of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. This is your host, Bunch, and joining me today is the wonderful Damien Kust. He's a writer for Last Word on Sports, I believe, uh, and uh, he has a Crack Rackets podcast that he does weekly uh, for the Challenger Tour, so definitely check that out. Um, he's a great follow on Twitter as well. So Damien, how are you? Uh, fine, after such an introduction, of course. <laughs> You know, how how could I be anything else but fine? Um, yeah, I think this is my second time appearing on the show. Uh, happy to uh, happy to be here again, and yeah, just excited to talk about uh, Monte Carlo and all the other stuff with you. Yeah, excited to get into it. Uh, obviously, you're you're sort of known as the guy who uh, you know <laughs> spots future talent, I guess, and junior talent and stuff going. Uh, so, to ask you about any players, you know, past the top one hundred. I feel like you're you're quite a good source for that. So I'm uh, we'll get into that as well. But I guess we'll start with Monte Carlo. Uh, obviously, that was the the biggest event on the calendar this week, and uh, Andre Rubai won his first Masters one thousand. Um, pulled off uh, two spectacular wins in the semis and in the final. I mean, what are, what were your sort of big takeaways from the week as a whole for Rublev and what this could mean in his career moving forward? I guess. Yeah, I have some, I don't know if controversial, but I have some strong opinions about it because frankly, I think a lot of this, a lot of stars had to align for this title to happen. That does not mean that he hasn't done well, but I, I also think that it's not going to change that much in his career. Um, the, the thing is that for years, we've been just thinking that, um, you know, guys like Medvedev, Zverev, they, they kept stopping him in some uh, very important matches in his career, right? Grand Slam quarterfinals, which is a stage he still hasn't progressed past. Um, Tsitsipas, maybe if he has a good like rivalry with him, right? Six all, I think, right now. Yeah, six five, uh, I believe, still. for Steph, right? Yeah. Um, because you're not counting. Oh them, yes, yes. Which is which yes. is a terrible term. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. I wish they counted that. You know, I wish they counted. But uh, yeah, it, yeah. So it is six five in the ATP Tour official match. Let's say. Yes. Uh, yes. And um. Well, what I mean is he, he lost to him twice in like the, the most important matches, let's say. So uh, Monte Carlo a final 2021 and in 2020 Ron Garros quarters. Right, right. And um, every time we sort of thought that uh, these guys are going to stop Rublev from winning the big titles. And that was true. Here, no, n- no one was around. But again, we're coming to a sort of spot where the next generation, let's say, Sinan Alcaraz Rune, uh, I know you have the the whole uh, farms. And uh, <laughs> you're going to come over. Yeah, quintuple um, uh, group of of players. But um, well, 
let's let's let maybe say that they have sort of separated yeah, themselves yeah. from especially Musetti, also Felix. And um well the the, the thing is that uh, I think soon they're going to be almost unreachable for Rublev. Like they're going to probably be what Medvedev and Zverev have been for him over the years. Maybe the matchups aren't as terrible, but I think the difference in quality is probably gonna get there. And uh, yeah, it, it was just the perfect opportunity for Rublev, but I still give him a lot of credit for actually taking it because, well, in the past, there's also been some minor chances that he wasn't able to convert. Even with Runa being so tired in the final and, um, you know, from the opening set, it was clear that he was trying to be more aggressive. He had to finish the points early, got just completely steamrolled in the in the second. Uh, but even with how uh, you could so clearly see that Bruna is just unable to play his usual stuff in the decider, Rubel still had to, you know, uh, make some very important shots like the the breakpoint at one four. The, that for that he still deserves a lot of credit, I feel. And uh, yeah, I think the stars have aligned for him. Uh, for years, uh, he's been such a dominant, uh, like a very constant presence in the uh, top ten. I actually checked this today. I, I wouldn't know it, but. Um, since the time when he first entered the top 10, which I think was October 2020, yep. he only left it for two weeks last year, which is a pretty crazy stat uh, when you think about it. And um, even if maybe he hasn't been threatening for big titles that much other than the two, the, uh, the two ATP um, thousand finals that he had in 2021 since he and Monte Carlo, um, still, that this is a, a real feat, and um, yeah, it just makes sense that someone like that uh, got an opportunity. He was able to convert. Of course, he avoided most of his big rivals, uh, Djokovic as well. I mean, they haven't faced that much. That's why I haven't mentioned him before. Um, they they only played like a couple of times, uh, but of course, Djokovic was also not there. He only had to beat one of the rude, uh, sorry, rude uh, Rune Sinner uh, Alcaraz um, generation, so to speak. And uh, yeah, well done for taking it. I don't think it's going to like propel him into a Grand Slam champion or something like that. And I think it might as well have been like his only big title opportunity. I wouldn't be shocked if this is the case. And uh, even even more important that he took it, of course, for him. And uh, um, yeah, just just he he was a little maybe uh, he was a bit a bit stuck with the uh, with the two sort of his peers being better than him, also having great matchups, especially because Medvedev and Zverev have just always been killing him with how well they defend. Uh, but And then the approaching three uh, greats, I don't want to say new big three because we've been, we've been using this way too Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we, with these guys approaching the, the top echelon of the game, um, I didn't really like his chances. Like in, in a year, I think they're going to be like pretty distantly better than Andrei Rublev. So, um, yeah, especially key that he took it. And, of course, extremely emo- emotional for him, for sure. Because if you're in the top 10 for, um, how long is it now? To almost three years, then uh, definitely your one and only focus, basically, is going to be to get that one big title, at least. Yeah, I think it was a step forward for him in terms of him taking the opportunity. I don't actually think that's very controversial, by the way. I mean, if you looked at the, the thing that that I will give him credit for, I mean, if you look at... Looked at the four semifinalists, you know he was the he was the one that I would have put fourth likely to come out on t- on top. So yeah. you know even you know I know people were talking about Fritz on clay and not being very um, you know capable on the surface and stuff, but I, I I still felt like you know 
things had to go his way, particularly in the third sets of both of these matches, particularly in coming back from a breakdown in the third um, against Fritz. I mean, obviously, you know, the, with the rain delay and everything, and then, uh, you know, because he had lost to Fritz, I think, three times before this, all in Masters 1000s in kind of similar type fashion. So for him to turn that rivalry around and get a win and then do it in the final, I guess, uh, it, it did kind of help him that he was more fresh also going into this final because, uh, you know, Sinner had Sinner and Runa went late into the evening. And, you know, I mean, by the time Runa went to bed, it was probably like three or four in the morning. And then it was such a quick turnaround from there. Oh, but, uh, but yeah, like, I mean, what did you think of like Runa's physical issues again in the third set? You know, especially because I did feel like his legs went away. Yeah, I think they started, like, they didn't even, uh, there wasn't a moment in the match where he wasn't impacted. I think from the get-go, he was playing so much more aggressively than he was against Sinner, for example, where mostly he was just grinding him down, let's say. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't really something like uh, the match against Deminor in Acapulco or Vavrinka in Indian Wells. I think this this was just more explainable because, as you said, he was playing until 10 p.m. local time and possibly went to bed like four hours later or five hours later. So I think this is more normal. This isn't uh, the sort of cramping that Rune used to suffer uh, used to suffer from in the past. This is just, you know, the same thing, thing happened with Medvedev in the quarterfinals when he beat Zverev, played until 11 p.m., uh, after 11 p.m. even, and then was dead the next day. And Rune just um, sort of never had a chance of winning this final, but yet almost did it. Uh, which, in a way, I suppose is pretty impressive. Uh, he showed a lot of skill in, yeah, just playing in incredible shots without moving his legs in the first set. There was this one, um, I think it was 5-5, the first break point uh, that he saved with a backhand winner down the line. And it was just a, such an absurd shot to to hit when with the sort of um, issues that he had. So, um, you know, when I, when I saw this... Uh, right now, no one is going to talk about this because, of course, he lost that game in the next point. But he was just yeah. hitting some ridiculous things to even get himself in the position to win this match. I do feel, though, that if Rune was fully fit, I wouldn't be giving Rublev that much of a chance in this one. So, um, again, sorry, I, I kind of don't believe in the Russians still in that sense. Uh, but, of course, you know... This, this is something that we're not going to be uh, mentioning in 10 years. Maybe you ask me in 20, you ask me in 20 years, and maybe I'm not even going to remember that Runa was fatigued. This is not something that is going to go down in history. This is not something that you're going to find in like an almanac uh, that uh, Rune, the, the previous day, he played until 10 p.m. and then he came out and already had to shorten the points, you know, playing more drop shots, uh, just, just press a lot more than he did against Sinner, for example. Uh, and uh, this is not something that really matters when it comes to like in the long run, the bottom line. So um, yeah, but but still a, a very impressive effort, of course, from from Rune. And but I do think that the the physical issues stopped him from winning this title. Yeah, yeah, I do think that was the end. At the end of it, I was impressed by Rublev's composure throughout the match. Um, I you know I must say because especially when he lost the first set, you know normally you see him quite down at that point then. <laughs> You know, usually some sort of visceral reaction, uh, you know, with his racket or with his uh, just, you know, has some kind of a mini outburst and then has to quickly reset. But, uh, you know, I, I think there was a, there was a kind of release of tension in this one to where, like, you know, he had lost so many matches like this in the past. 
So for him, it was kind of like a bonus, if that makes sense, to come back and win the win the second set so comfortably, and then, uh, you know, and then I think when he was down one four in the in the third set, he kind of, you know, had sort of you know sort of mentally any kind of a hold at that point would be a would be a big boost because then you know there was a chance that Runa was going to get tight, and I think two double faults in the next game, and then, uh, you know, gets broken at five all and. Uh, that that backhand winner that you're talking about that reminded me of the one that he had in Australia actually uh, in in the fifth set I want to say in the tiebreak even though he ended up losing it um, yeah yeah to me it reminds me of that uh, forehand from Alcaraz when he played Noring in... oh yes yes I was going to bring that one up too not moving at all but uh, yeah it just yeah, yeah. Same shot. even more because it was like almost around the net or maybe even around the net but uh, but um, yeah it, that reminded me of this uh, but. Uh, certainly, uh, I can't remember what I was talking about. I was going to say, you know, I just started picturing Alcaraz hitting that forehand. Now my mind is just on that. Um, oh, I, oh no, I, I, I know what I wanted to say. Yeah, the composure was definitely there. And um, I, I agree with what she said, that maybe after being crushed in the previous two ATP 1000 finals, because they yeah. weren't even close, right? No, no, yeah. Maybe maybe at this point, yeah, he just was able to play um, a bit more loosely. I know a lot of people um, are going to talk about the two smashes that Fogger missed at 5 all as well as some yeah. sort of instance of him choking. But I think, you know, if you just look at the physical state that he was in, uh, no one would be <laughs> would find it easy to hit these sort of routine shots, um, you know, in normal circumstances. So, um, yeah, it, it was definitely a better mental effort than uh, from Rublev than it was a worse, worse mental effort from Rublev, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Rune's shot selection, though, this year, in general, before this week, has been a little up and down. Like, in some matches, you know, particularly, I think, in Miami when he played Fritz, or in some of his losses, he did pick up a few injuries as well. Uh, like, you know, he hurt his wrist in Australia, and he kind of wasn't really the same in February. And then in Indian Wells in Miami, of course, he um, he went out earlier than he would have liked uh and I just felt like sometimes he was pulling the trigger on certain shots that I'm like, you know, just use your amazing athleticism and court coverage and, you know, just rely on being steady because your backhand is very steady and you can just trade with it. And then you can wait for the right ball and, you know, then go for the drop shot or go for the down the line winner. And it's like, you know, there were, and then there were other times where he was so far behind the baseline and I was like calling for him to be more aggressive. And he was just, you know, because he can really do both game styles very well. It's just a matter of him sort of having that tactical clarity and focus to just keep it going because he still kind of has these ups and downs in the in the match. Um, so yeah, that that would be my only hesitation for like picking something, picking him to do something really big this year in a major. I just feel like he might not be ready from a focus standpoint and maintaining his shot selection. I, I think I might even be more concerned about that than the physical issues, and maybe they kind of go hand in hand because obviously when you're fatigued, then your know, your shot selection can suffer and it sort of bleeds into the other. Yeah, endurance is a big thing, though, too. Like, if we're thinking about him winning best of five uh, tournaments, so what, well, one of the slams, uh, and potentially beating one of beating some of these guys back-to-back, let's say, I don't know, Sinair Djokovic, Alcaraz Djokovic, whatever, some of the combinations. Um, yeah, that, that's, that could be rough. If he plays for four hours against someone like Sinair Djokovic, and maybe uh, especially that that Sinner match took so uh, so much out of him, 
because he was playing yeah a lot of the time he was the one playing two two or three meters behind the baseline then um but i actually like what he said about like uh, his short, short selection being spotty in the first three months of the year because uh clay should be able to like give him more options in that right growing up it was always the the surface he first felt most comfortable on um Robin garros junior's title of course but basically until the end of 2022 it was the only surface he had huge success on other than the challenger title uh somewhere at the end of 2021 uh so i think on clay he definitely found more balance and um the the first two matches against Medvedev and team i know both opponents are needed in a way as well because well uh, Medvedev was fired and team um, well it's not the team of all I actually thought team played pretty pretty decent you know I thought team yeah. team was not bad honestly but I, I, I thought Runa was just too good yeah. for both of these guys right and and um, against Sinner he definitely played a lot more defense than he is used to and maybe that's why he was also tired uh, but I think uh, yeah what, like you said he, he has definitely shown that he can do both he can do basically any game plan available to uh, to people in tennis, uh, he can rush the net, he can crush the first ground strokes. Sometimes, of course, one of these game plans isn't really going to work for him. Like against Sinner in the opening set, he was really trying to uh, do something to stop Yannick from just you're killing every single ball. And he was just pressing with the with the first shot in the rally. But um, uh, even when uh, one of these doesn't fail, he definitely has a lot of options. And I think that completely, that, you know, being, to, being so... Uh, just having such a complete skill set is definitely uh, something that sort of separates him from, from uh, Sinner and makes him closer to Alcaraz, at least in that sense. Although, of course, it's uh, it's very hard to compare like who's actually going to be better between, let's say, Luna Sinner. Uh, but he's definitely more complete, like uh, like Carlos is than um, than uh, Yannick, who actually kind of reminds me of Rublev in, in some ways. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, just definitely does it better. Uh, they they are a bit one-dimensional in how they play off the ground, but Sinner just does it a bit more violently. Yeah, and he has that explosive movement and court coverage, and he can hit open stance better. I think that's obviously he can defend better on his backhand, and there are like some subtle differences. But oddly, you know, going into this one, I felt like if Sinner had, if Sinner and Rublev played each other because their games are so similar, and because Sinner does everything a little better, like you were saying, I felt like uh, Sinner like. Would have had would have had a great chance to win his first Masters, but um, I think also like him, like the conditions changing so much in that semifinal. Like it's starting, you know, in the in the day when it was windier, and you know, a bit a bit faster in the day, obviously, and livelier versus like slow and dead and very like hard to hit through. Um, it it just made it so difficult for Sinner to get the ball by Runa because Runa was doing such a good job of job of hitting really high and heavy over the net, and he was making, you know, like Sinner's backhand, he was kind of making it look average, which is not normally the case. <laughs> and then and then he was just having a lot more success, I felt like, just finishing at net and those natural sort of in- instincts and, you know, touch shots and, like, you know, the drop shot lob combos. I know Sinner hit that spectacular backhand cross court. That's kind of his trademark now, going back. And instead of doing the tweener, he kind of has maintains really good balance and then he goes for a really good angle on the pass. But uh, I, I just felt like Sinner had to do so much to win points. And, um, I mean, I can't really say he bottled the last two sets because he never really had any lead to start yeah, with. He got, 
got back from uh, 0-3, right, to 5-5. Yeah. He still did some damage to himself before the break with these three yes. games. Where I think that was crucial because his level dipped so much in the in that game that he had. Like a hundred and four errors, right? And then yeah. after they returned, he still got it back to 5-5. Five, five. Of course, it's not said that if they were at to all, let's say, that that Sinner was going to be able to just win the match, but Maybe that would have been the case, but I, I think it definitely the, the heavier, the wetter conditions did not suit him. They allowed Rune to just have an answer to that power, start using the drop shot, because at the beginning he couldn't really drop shot Sinner because he was just constantly five meters behind the baseline, right? And uh, yeah, we, we I know he hit that backhand, and it's a very smart choice, to, of course, like almost always it's better than the winner. Uh, but in general, in like these cut and mouse play, Sinner doesn't really hold up, and Zuna was able to, um, to sort of get to that. Uh, but Sinner will definitely be very disappointed. I frankly didn't think he was gonna win his first tournament in, um, I mean, ATP thousand in Monte Carlo. I think it's more likely to go to happen on hard courts. But when I saw that first set, yeah, I mean, when, when I saw how he was just destroying every single ball, and it was pretty funny. Because uh, even when he hit, like, uh, even when he had like a routine seater forehand, he was still going at it with like 170 kilometers an hour. They were constantly showing on my TV feed the the speed of Sinner's uh, forehand, and um, yeah, he was just going at it so hard. And I um, I saw him crashing Brune in the opener, and then I started leaving. Um, and when, what, what you said about Sinner Rublev, uh, I wasn't really sure like what to think about who would be better for the Russian, because. Um, yeah, as you said, they're similar. Sinner does everything better, but at the same time, Rune has all these other options that yeah. can sort of make Rublev um, at least uh, a little confuse, uh, uh, confuse him at least a little bit. And um, yeah, I think if if we saw a hundred percent fit Rune, then probably he also would have been um, well would have been able to to do that more to Rublev. Of course, he was kind of overplaying the drop shot in the actual final that we sh- that we uh, that we saw. But well, he had to finish points earlier, so um, that's one of the main po- main ways to do that, I guess. Whenever you play a drop shot, it's ninety percent chance that it's gonna be finished, whether it's your whether it's you winning the point or the other guy. Who knows? But yeah. it's certainly gonna make the point shorter. Yeah, someone who did actually use a drop shot pretty well is not someone you would associate with the drop shot was Fritz actually in this tournament because, um, you know. I think he talked about the drop shot not being, you know, it doesn't have to be very good on clay because, you know, you just, as long as you push your opponent back and you hit heavy to the weaker wing, then you have so much court to work with that, you know, you can always just disguise it. You, you can always just disguise it, but even if it floats a little bit past, let's say, the the immediate uh, doubles alley, like just near the net post, like you're you're pretty much good. But I guess in talking about Fritz, I mean, I had him getting to the final, so I was very confident that he was going to do well on clay. It just, I didn't really understand, like, the whole consensus of, like, Fritz not being a great clay court player. Like, I know we have a history in America of, you know, players not doing very well on clay, and this was the first time a man had even made the semis since Vince Spadia in 2003, Monte Carlo. But, uh, and, but I just felt like Fritz has been putting in the hard yards on clay ever since, I mean, his first junior final, I think it was against Tommy Paul in 2015. Roland Garros, he made the final. He, I think he played the full clay season in 2019, and he just he had, he he seemed like he was very committed to getting better on the surface. But I just feel like with his improved game now, we didn't really get to see that evolution because last year he, like, was injured the entire time, and he he lost a very close three setter to Davidovich Fokina, 
And I thought, okay, and he wasn't even healthy in that match because he was just coming off of a super tiring, you know, sunshine swing and I think playing in Houston also. And he didn't when he didn't play in Houston, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm picking Fritz to like do some damage here because like, I mean, Bobrinko played very well, I thought. Lehetcho was pretty good for about two sets. We found our way through him and then and then obviously he was very impressive against Sitipas, who I think is still like coming back from the shoulder thing. But uh, but I, but overall, like I, I you know I was pretty impressed, and I was actually frankly very disappointed in the last two sets against Rublev. I thought that was maybe some of the worst two sets he's played since I guess fall twenty twenty one, since this new improved version of Fritz. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think the um, the way he's played at Ron Garros two thousand twenty two kind of left a sour taste in in our our minds. Let's say not yours, clearly. Um, I know. Yeah, I just discounted that one because I was like, okay, he, yeah. you know, he had the foot thing and like clearly was right, I suppose. Yeah, but but Fritz in general over the past few years definitely improved his movement so much on clay. I remember being like yeah. almost unable to watch him play from clay sometimes. <laughs> he was just yeah, yeah. Um, is the is the perfect description. Not so much anymore, and like definitely not. Um, especially the way he's covering the forehand corner now. He was also resetting with all these forehand loops. I mean, at some point, you're, you're just you're just watching him and, uh, wow, is this really Taylor Fritz? Yeah. Um, and, of course, uh, one of the big reasons why he's in the top 10 right now and that sort of caliber of a player is uh, the way he's improved his backhand. And uh, I think on clay especially, it also helps him so much. Uh, although against Rublev, he definitely should have been winning more of these backhand cross-court exchanges that they just kept going for. And uh, most often it was actually Fritz, I think, making the, the first error, which which was quite a surprise. But uh, you're, I think um, you're right in that um, if Fritz played at the sort of peak level that he displayed against uh, the Hedgeka in the last two sets, like a set and a half, let's say, and also the set and a half against Tsitsipas without that one wobbly game, uh, he could definitely have more than, than Rublev for me. The, the peak level was higher, he just didn't really display it. Uh, I did not think that Fritz was going to like maybe get to the final semi. Uh, I thought he might be quite vulnerable early because the draw was, yeah. was tough. I mean, Vabrinka, Lehechka in a row, that's already a, a, a big test. And I guess it was a big test because, as you said, Vabrinka went very well, had five set points in the opener, uh, and that was basically all he had um, energy for. So uh, we have no idea what would have happened if he if he actually converts one of them. And Lehechka was honestly comfortably outplaying Fritz for the first set and like a few games. Um, I even remember uh, watching it and like thinking that this is the, this is where you see the difference of the movement. That uh, Lehechka out of just defensive positions is, a, is still able to just hit a good ball. Is able to put some pressure on Fritz. Fritz not not not, not so much. And then for like three sets, he entered into this insane, uh, absolutely insane pink level. And um, yeah, that, that was very impressive. And I do wonder what we're going to see from him now, because as you said last time, he only played, well, Houston. Houston doesn't count. Let's say Houston doesn't count. Karchu doesn't count. So yeah. he, only play, uh, he only played two um, red clay, red, European red clay events. So um, yeah, I wonder what he's gonna do. Uh, definitely like him, like like his chances more in Madrid than Rome and uh, Paris. But um, yeah, I also don't think he's gonna be as poor at Ron Garros as he was last year. So um, yeah, that's actually one of after Monte Carlo. That's one of the most exciting storylines of the steel of the ATP tournament. <laughs> Remainder of the of the clay season. What is Streets going to do? I think Munich plays pretty fast as well. 
Uh, so maybe maybe he can have his chances there. Of course, the draws this week are kind of well. Next week are kind of weaker with the with the free events. So uh, there's definitely some chance for Fritz to already be already go beat there. Yeah, and I think Fritz has done a really good job of like improving his floor this year because you know even last year he went on these really big runs, but I didn't feel like he uh, was able to win consistently with his let's say B or C level. But I feel like he's doing that more often this year. I mean, he's thirteen and two in tie breaks. He's uh. Uh, like he's really his only bad loss, I think, would be like the second round of the Australian Open. But you know, aside from it's that, I think bad because it was straights, right? Yeah. But it's not like actually bad. I mean, Popperin was yeah pretty. Insane. He was he was playing out of his mind that match for sure. Yeah. Um, but like, but like, no, I th- I think I agree with you about the, his movement because like his explosive movement is so much better than it used to be. I think in general, even on the hard courts. And I think the extra time actually on the clay, like it just, it bodes well for him because anything like shoulder height or anything remotely short, he's just going to crush. And if you have, especially on his forehand, I think like that's that's another shot that's improved because now he can just terminate the point straight up with his forehand and he doesn't like to come forward. So for a guy who doesn't like to come forward, I feel like if you have such a strong weapon from the back of the court like that to just, you know, he can go behind the opponent, he can... Just crush. He can laser that thing for a winner, and I, you know, I actually think I actually think his backhand has always been really good, because um, you know, when he was coming up in juniors, like I remember watching him in Memphis 2016, like when he made the final there and then lost to Nishikori, and I was like, okay, he's able to hang with Nishikori backhand to backhand. Like I just feel like the ball striking perspective, the ball striking is very good. Like I feel like once he connects in the middle of his strings, he can be very precise. He can find really good angles. And you can do that, honestly, against Tsitsipas. He was taking the ball super early and going down the line really quickly. So he could get uh, Tsitsipas, keep Tsitsipas honest, basically, and then get something shorter and then attack the backhand. So he was doing a really good job, I feel like, of that. Because I think so many players, when they play Steph, they think, okay, I just have to go straight. I just always have to attack the backhand. Keep going there, keep going there, it'll break down. But actually, it really doesn't, especially on clay, because, you know, Steph is actually, like, pretty comfortable. When he's set, like, just trading, he can do that, like, pretty well but you have to rush him so in order to rush him you have to open up the space so you have to you have to go to his forehand like earlier in the point like maybe with an inside in or a backhand line and I think Fritz actually was doing that a lot better like he was taking more risk than he would normally have to because Sitsipas is also a really good mover on clean so he can cover that wing uh, you know he can get to that faster and because he likes to cheat a little bit like after the serve he sort of wants to hit only inside out forehands from this backhand side so I feel like uh no, I think Fritz did that really well, and then and then a few times he also threw in the drop shot, and it was they were not good drop shots, but they worked. Yeah, they don't have to be definitely not. Uh, in general, it's something that maybe wasn't the best city pass that we could have gotten, you know. No, no, it wasn't for sure. He played it's... like the first two rounds. He didn't really get any rhythm. No, he didn't. Round. Yeah, I was just gonna mention that because retirement, and then Nicholas Jari didn't play as well as I thought he would. So yeah. five against Bonzi and uh, six versus six four against Jari, who doesn't yeah. give you rhythm. So uh, and he's a guy who, after all the uh, sun, the, the mess that Sasha and double was for Tsitsipas, oh, yeah, he kind of needed that, right? He just needed a few matches. So I think it's especially important for him that he plays Barcelona now. So that back and baby wasn't holding up as it usually does on clay. But yeah, Fritz definitely has more um, more explosiveness in his footwork than he did later in the semi. Uh, because I think especially when he played Rublev, this was also what he lacked. Uh, they were playing just constantly, constantly backhands cross-court, exchanged, of course. Uh, no one really willing to go down the line most of the time. But 
Rue in the second and third set, it was just always Ruben getting the first forehand. And yeah. I guess in this matchup, it was just the most important thing in the world, right? To get yes. Inside him, inside out forehand. Because that's, uh, yeah, that's what they live on. And yeah. Uh, you know, I was praising his backhand so much. And then he plays Fritz. I mean, then he plays Rublev and he makes 22 and four serves and five winners. And it was just, it was not there for him. And he didn't serve nearly as well as uh, he probably should have. But then also, like, those really slow conditions definitely didn't favor him. Because um, he, he's he's also another one of those players, like, to win these lead matches, like, he has to be on with his serve. Because if his serve is off, I think he's still more reliant on on just, yeah, having a good... I, I still kind of feel like, though, he has... Generally, he has the bigger weapons than Frit, than Rublev. Yeah, especially in the opener, you could kind of see how how different they are on uh, fast one shots. Oh, yeah. Um, there was a moment when I checked these stats on uh, like short rallies behind the serve, and of course, Spritz had like I don't know, seventeen to four or something. Yeah. Else. And on Rublev's serve, it was like nine nine, which was a shock to me. But then I started paying to paying attention to it, and I quickly realized why. I mean. Uh, Fritz was first of all defending so well, which um, you know we mentioned yeah. that the movement is. He stole that first set with his defense. Uh, uh, like, yeah, you know, exactly. mankind. And, and and like he was getting to what Rublev was sending at him, but also Rublev was just not bold enough with his plus one forehands and not really getting out of, um, um, that much out of them. But when Fritz had a good serve, he was just killing the point instantly. And uh, yeah, for me, he just has the bigger weapons, but um, yeah, just wasn't able to use them as effectively. And as you said, the backhand did not hold up, which was super weak just to watch. Um, especially I was, you know, we, we both do something for uh, some things for a uh, topic tennis. Yeah. And I was actually doing the commentary for this match. And I remember saying before before it, before it started um, that, um, well, they, they both are going to play a lot of the bird, try to keep each other on the backhand, of course. But Fritz right now, I mean, his backhand is just so much more familiar than Rublev. <laughs> that's what I thought going in, you know, that's what I, I was, I was very surprised. I love this, you know, 30 shot rallies, backhand to backhand, and Fritz is always the one to make the first thing. Yeah. And I end up looking stupid. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, that, that happens so much. Um, yeah, and then, you know, Rublev's court positioning was very interesting in that match as well because, like, on the on the return, on the backhand wing, he would stand really close to the baseline and just, you know, try to take those returns on the rise. And then on the on the forehand wing, he would be, like, five to six meters behind the baseline and try to get more air under his shots. But then, like, as the match progressed, he was, like, he was hugging the baseline more better with his court positioning and, like, his forehands were actually doing some good damage inside-out, inside-in combinations, but... Yeah, I, I think overall I, I left that match just feeling very disappointed about Fritz's level really the last two sets. Like I, you know, I, I was obviously, you know, like I had to credit Rublev, but I just felt like, man, Fritz, I don't, you know, Fritz normally doesn't lose a match like this now. So we will... That's how I felt after the final. I was... Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I felt the same. Yeah, in both cases. That's why, like, I, you know, I agreed with you initially when you were like, yeah, you know, I, that's why I don't think this is like some massive thing for Rublev where now all of a sudden he's going to start you know like being a contender to win a slam because you know he generally plays well in Monte Carlo and in Belgrade and this time of the year like he usually does pick up the title on the slow clay court and then it started off so yeah I'm, I mean I'm I'm really not sure what, he, what he's going to do in Madrid and Rome but it sort of depends on the draw and it, it really depends on the draw I'll say that <laughs> And for him, it especially depends on the draw, right? Yeah, yeah. It's always dependent on the draw. 
I for some reason I, I would have to rewatch something some thousand twenty matches from here. Uh, but in QA that forehand was just much bigger back then. That it was the like the full reason why he broke the top, top fan back then. And now as he sort of he broke the backhand as well, I don't think he's as explosive as he was in the past, maybe. And um yeah, in, in some of the bigger matches in definitely be an issue for him. But as you said in the latter two sets against Ritz, he was he, he definitely made sure to flee closer to the baseline and yeah. uh, finally choose all these maybe just graver options on the plus one forehands that I was really just desperate for to see from him after the opener. Uh, there was a I cannot remember the exact point now, but uh, in the, at the beginning of the second set, I think because the second set was six one, but it was on the every single game was so close, right? Yeah. But there was that one great point that Lublet saved for a pretty insane inside in forehand. Yes. And uh, that was more or less where uh, I think he started just going for more with these shots. Uh, right, because he was up a break at that point. It was two one thirty forty, and then he hits yeah, that ridiculous inside in. Right. I think that I think this is the. Yeah, right. Because that could have been a turning point in the match if Fritz breaks back there, and then, you know, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, it, uh, still, it was a good week for him, I guess. Uh, um, yeah. So we'll wait and see what Rublev does the rest of the clay court season. Um, but uh, in terms of in terms of the rest of the tournament, uh, was there any other surprises for you, like early rounds, anything that you? You know, because Monte Carlo is obviously very difficult to predict, just with the yeah. with the surface change, and then also like just one week break between Miami. Uh, it's kind of yeah. How early it is after Miami definitely makes it that, and even in matches like Rublev and Munar, we saw that right that he needed a set. Um, I guess the main thing, of course, I I wouldn't say it shocked me, but um, certainly I I definitely enjoyed seeing Yaman Ashtrup get around like this. Um, because frankly, the whole year it just it just felt like he playing you know something very close to his peak. He's of course managed to return to the top one hundred and um, basically had no bad losses. I would say uh, there was that one against Gerasimo in Vilnius, which I actually saw live, and um, he was coming back after a small injury that kept him out of Davis Cup. Yeah, and uh, he he lost he lost that match very easily. So that's the bad loss that he had. But otherwise, whatever he was playing, also the 11, 11 and zero record in qualifying, which is pretty pretty crazy. But also a big aspect of why this round did I mean this year has been so good for him. And then he just crushes everyone at the main draw up until up, up until Rublev. Uh, so that was very very fun to watch. And uh, the second um, okay. The, the second um, uh, ATP 1000 quarterfinal of his career. And at the age of 32, you know, maybe there is still a chance that he can get that, that, he can get that first ATP 2 title. That's, a, that's something we're always going to yeah. um, look at when it comes to him. Munich is a good chance, I guess. He was, uh, this is his only ATP final. Yeah. Um, I remember, you know, last year I was even, uh, I, I, I was um, talking to him in Braunschweig and mentioning that. Like, do you still think you can win that title? And it's just a storyline that I think everyone wants to see. Um, if not, uh, you know, him winning a title, then maybe coming close again. And uh, yeah, just just uh, a storyline that we want to see continue. And especially after this sort of year that he had in 2022, uh, particularly the first half where he was, I think, like 2 and 13 uh, up until Wimbledon or something like that. 
I had a foot issue that he had to um, also. Yeah. Um, he he got injured. He injured himself in Miami uh, last year, and then he had. Uh, yeah. Then he missed like most of the clay court season. I actually think the clay is like his best surface, because it yeah, gives him. I, yeah, I would agree. It gives him more time. Like you would think grass. He's pretty good on grass too. But I think, uh, but I think with the clay, like he has more time to set up his big forehand after the serve, and it's, it's kind of like the John Isner thing, where it's like, Isner's best result is Wimbledon semifinals. So we think like, okay, that's his best surface. But he's like always been like fourth round of Roland Garros quarters. Yeah, that kind of thing. It's clearly not. Yeah, you could definitely. I like for for Struve, I would I would agree that it's clay, but he's done well everywhere. But for Isner, it's definitely not grass. Yeah, yeah. Somehow he got that. Well, almost made it to the final twenty six twenty four. Right. Uh, but yeah, I I definitely agree with you that 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 Struve's best chance is probably on clay. But you wouldn't really be shocked him to see him make a final on grass on hard either. And um, yeah, just love this round for him. Of course, uh, it would have looked better if he just managed to serve it out against Ruth at six one five two. Now it comes oh, yeah. like a competitive match where it really wasn't. That's right. But um, yeah, just absolutely crushed him, which I guess was one of the main upsets of the event. Maybe not necessarily the fact that Struf won it. Um, probably after what he did in the first two rounds, uh, you know, you could kind of think that he has a chance. But yeah, just the the style in which he did it. Particularly until six one five two, of course. The um, Casper Ruud, though, he's uh, he's obviously struggling still. Like I know he won Estoril, uh, you know, last week, and mm-hmm. he looked he looked good at times against Kachmanovic, and obviously Halis was playing very well that week, and he managed to squeeze that one out in a third set tie break. But I, I still think uh, his his confidence and his the penetration, like especially also his backhand, I think was much better last year around this time and the rest of the second half of the year so like I'm kind of waiting for Casper to like get it going you know now because he's he's got a lot of points to defend and like Rome and Roland Garros and I I think he'll start to make some progress but I don't know if he'll you know I don't think we can expect him to defend all the points that he did last year and finish number two in the world or you know get to the finals of ATV finals like it just it was a career year for him in terms of that. Yeah, making some finals definitely seems like a bit of a stretch for Casper Ruud, especially on hard courts. Um, on clay, you could imagine that, but then again, against most of the opponents he could face in the final, he would have been easily beaten, and that's what happened. Probably one of the worst Grand Sum finals, uh, honestly, that I remember. Uh, but but yeah, I, 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 I just wonder how much of that is still coming from that uh, weird warm-up that he had, you know, not having the off-season going for that Latin America tour, yeah. uh, then having an off-season in February. I mean, he's already stated that it was an error. Yeah, he admitted, he admitted it was a mistake, here. for sure. Yeah, I wonder how much of how, you know, his struggles right now. And I know he's won in the story, and yet he played pretty well there. But how much of his struggles right now that are they are still going up until this day? I wonder how much of that is actually still the the poor the poor preparation that he had. And uh, I my assumption is that it's probably a big factor. Yeah, well, yeah, pretty much agree with all that. Um, I guess uh, also the other highlight, of course, was uh, was Medvedev on clay <laughs> getting to the quarters. Um, and yeah, more Medvedev off-court stuff, really. But <laughs> but also the match against Zverev that he was able to tough that win out because, yeah, Zverev surfed it twice. And then, you know, like, we had to save those two match points in the tie break. And 
sort of missed this second serve return on the backhand for one of them. And then the, the other one, he sort of played very passively, but Medvedev took advantage and he actually, I, you know, between this, in this Medvedev's rivalry, like all these matches go down to the wire. It feels like, you know, all these, all these third sets since 2018, Medvedev has come out of the clutch and sort of like found the answers and, Zverev is like, you know, you would think these last two times they played, you would have thought, you know, Zverev would have had a big advantage coming in, at least on paper. You know, just with his shots doing more damage on a slower court. Indian Wells, Monte Carlo, like two of the most slow courts out there. And, uh, you know, he still wasn't able to convert one of them to wins. So I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely psychological as well in some moments. Was it you that you uh, that uh, put this poll on Twitter? Uh, like, whose forehand would you like to have? Uh, who- oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I keep mentioning that to people because um, I think it actually uh, like it's a very good question, and uh, I think of course no one wanted to have Hurkacz's forehand. No, uh, but I think the main the main sort of idea about this is that for Medvedev and for Hurkacz, even both Medvedev defends with it so well and etc. Uh, they are technically flawed. Yes. Zverev, not really. No, Zverev, it's it's mental, right? Yeah, the same we we saw in that match again. Although I will say Medvedev has improved his forehand this year. I think with the softer strings, because he switched from you know razor, he switched from razor coat to razor soft technofiber strings in the off season. So I think he's actually added like a few more miles per hour and some more RPMs and spin. And I noticed in this match, I mean, this should not be happening for Zverev, but you know Medvedev was winning like the forehand to forehand rallies. And yeah, yeah, and he was just doing a lot better, like changing directions. I feel like that like, he was going down the line earlier, and he was just constructing points a little bit better. Even though, like, yeah, I mean, Zverev can produce so much more power, and it's it's a lot easier for him, like, because his his technique is better. Yeah, I mean, probably everyone can remember like at least one or two Alexander Zverev matches when the forehand is firing, and that's when like. That about the yeah. performance you remember for the rest of your life and etc. But not, uh, but most of the time, yeah, it's just mental. And and he, uh, when it comes to the crunch, he has many times displayed that he is not willing to go for it. He wasn't willing to go for it in the most important moments against Medvedev. And yeah, I, I mean, I cannot really like praise Medvedev for his Monte Carlo run that much. Yeah, but of course he did well to steal this much. But yeah. he was never like he never had any business winning. I know, and uh, perhaps even more in Monte Carlo than in the Wells. But uh, well, definitely more in how they went. But I, I think even given the the, the courts, uh, I would say yeah. that in Monte Carlo, Zverev was even more a favorite for me than against Medvedev. But yeah, just it just hasn't materialized. Of course, it's still early in Zverev's comeback. He has given some big statements recently about uh, him, um, you know, winning Grand Garros if he could shocker get injured. Frankly, if 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 he won the tiebreak, I I kind of buy it. Um, he was really at his peak at that in that event, but oh, yeah, last year won the tiebreak. Like he must have won the tiebreak. Um, the, the the second set tiebreak against the Dow. Um, yeah, we don't know that, but but even in that match, you know, he was he was on clutch in a lot of moments. Like he was up six two yeah. in the first set. He was up, he was serving for the second set, and then he double faults three times, and then you know he was up. Yeah, so it's like it, it's it still feels like the nerves, and I don't think the second serve has ever gotten better. Frankly, like he's had so many years now to get that shot better. And it just it lets him down every single time in these big big moments, I feel like. Unless yeah. 
like you know his best chance to beat Medvedev would have been third forward at five four in the second, finish it off in straights, and you know once the match went to a third, I'm like, okay, Medvedev is winning this. <laughs> That's kind of how I felt. Yeah, I mean, you don't really need to have like a huge cycle to serve, right? I mean, Rublev is a good example. Uh, it's a weakness, but he can he can somehow hold on to it, right? He can yeah. he uh, it doesn't do that much damage to him. But when uh, you start missing the second serve, uh, that's when the problem comes in for sure. Yeah, yeah, because he he sort of like decelerates on it, so he's either going like I mean yeah. I mean twenty twenty U S Open he was either hitting one thirty fives or sixty eight, <laughs> but it was like no in between. Yes, yeah. yeah, but yeah, I mean, uh, so yeah, that was that was basically like a theft and. In nighttime, shall we say, for Medvedev. Um, uh, but, or I guess robbery is a better word. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, you know, I like I kind of like these one-week Masters events because right from the get-go, you're getting, like, you know, top 32 players basically facing off against each other. And it's like, uh, it's kind of been a blur because, like, the last four days were pretty crazy with Monte Carlo. And then and now it feels like, oh, it's already over. Yeah, I I do I I can't really relate to people saying that the two week masters are like a drag because if you watch you know at the same time if there are four challengers yeah I don't really feel that I I can't really say that I'm ever frankly I like almost uh, other than December I I never really feel like there's not enough tennis but if you're like only trying to watch Indian Wells Miami or any of the other uh, 1.5 big masters now, I can get that. Like if if yeah. once on a Tuesday, for example, there are just four singles matches, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's definitely something that um, shouldn't maybe uh, exist. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Indian Wells and Miami are fine, but I don't know if we ever really need uh, more 1.5 big masters. But um, yeah. well, we're gonna see, right? We we can't really judge them before we actually yeah. get to them. Yeah, pretty much that's what I uh, thought as well, because like, it was why we're used to that. But the others, yeah, we kind of have to see how it goes, because, yeah, like, I mean, there were some other events that were on the calendar, but no, because, yeah, they're both two weeks. So, yeah, I, I think it's because, like, the first three days, like, you have the buys, you know, like, you know, the 32 players, uh, all 32 get buys, and then it's... Uh, it doesn't really feel like a premier event, I would say, until like the, that Friday, you know, the Friday before. Um, and then it's like so saturated for like five days and then it just, it kind of dies down. But of course, there's so much other tennis. Oh. But yeah, if you wanted to... The first... Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm on. Oh, yeah. You were going to say something. Uh, no, I just wanted to say that, you know, for me, like the, the first rounds are probably the most interesting. <laughs> Uh, for sure, and uh, that's when you have the yeah. fires play. No, no, I I find them very interesting too. It's mostly just uh, you know, the larger I guess the larger audience in terms of like the non hipsters. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So we say, yeah. Um, but yeah, speaking of uh, challengers, let's talk about Sarasota because uh, that uh, that was won by Daniel Alquire, and he beat uh, Galan in the final. Uh, Galan of beating Stefanos Tsitsipas in the first round of fame at the U.S. Open. But uh, but yeah, what did you make of uh, of the tournament as a whole and uh, Alquire winning in the end? Um, yeah, uh, the, the biggest green clay event, uh, definitely, uh, definitely quite fun because, well, it's, it just happens once a year, right? We only get three events on this in the States. Uh, Galan was actually the, def- the defending champion, so a bit of a yeah. surprise, I guess, in the final, in a way, the battle of the Daniels. Uh, but, but certainly, um, it, it, it just, um, you know, I love variety in terms of court conditions and, uh, just watching uh, a few events a year here on Hard True is, uh, is quite cool. Um, the, the the more usual bounce rather than clay, the, the faster conditions and uh, both guys definitely enjoy it, especially this year. I mean, it, it, in recent years, you could maybe even make an argument that Altmaier has been um, similarly as successful on hard courts as on clay or something like that. And uh, Galan, as you said, I mean, he won the, um, he, he defeated at City Pass, but since... yeah. It's been a very tough uh, road for him, but both guys basically secured their uh, Ron Garros main draw spots, I think, with the, with these runs. I'm not sure if Galan was really fully in danger. Altmaier definitely was. He didn't go deep, and the cutoff is tomorrow. Um, so quite huge for them as well. And uh, anytime also we get these American challengers with, uh, you know, really nicely packed with HD quality on, or like almost HD quality on the stream and uh, the commentary, uh, that's uh, that that's uh, very cool for uh, for a challenger enjoyer as well. But uh, yeah, I thought in the final, Admire was just able to create so much more when it comes to offense of the backhand side. Um, neither guy you would really say it's their better wing. Admire, of course, has a one-hander, but probably one of the more stable ones on the tour. And um, yeah, compared to Gang, he was just able to do so much more with it and then eventually find the opening with the forehand, move the Colombia. Um, a little, a little bit surprised, I guess, that he won his title. He was really struggling with uh, Martin Dam in the open ground, but um, in the end, of course, he gets the 125 points. He's actually going to travel to Munich as well, which is which is uh, going to be a very hectic end. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, that's a, that's a really quick turnaround. And he plays Karatsev in the first round. Yeah, he got a wild card for this, so I, I mm-hmm. guess he will be very um, tempted to go. But uh, yeah, we'll see how uh, how he actually plays when he gets there. Maybe they can give him a, a some, so Jesus Wednesday start. That would certainly be of some help. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he was two points away from losing in the first round, so to hold the trophy at the end is definitely good for him. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I spoke to you about this before the podcast, but I think uh, you know, I I expected a lot more of Altmaier once he beat. Uh, Berrettini in the 2020 Roland Garros third round, I believe it was. Um, yeah, like after that run, 
I I would have expected he would be a solid top sixty player by now. So um, he's twenty four, I guess. So he's still got some time. But uh, yeah, hopefully this will actually, you know, propel him to something better on, on on the clay. I feel like he can actually do some damage with the backhand. Um, yeah, the, I guess the 2020 uh, Ralph Garros was just a little weird as well, right? I mean, right after yeah. the pandemic, uh, not everyone got that much play on clay beforehand. Uh, there was only Rome. Uh, and like, um, you know, th- there were some peculiar results. Of course, not in the end, because not all Djokovic played the final. Um, that's what you would expect. But um, yeah, Altmaier was definitely one of the stories of the tournament back then. And he has not really come close to replicating that since even I would say you know most major events he's been looking kind of underwhelming for sure um, but but yeah I think he's quietly made plenty of improvement as well mostly in how he performs uh, besides clay right now I think uh, the serve especially in some in some indoor events has been looking just exceptional and maybe at some point he can combine all of these elements uh, but um, yeah, for now, uh, as as I said, he he has managed to lo- lock himself up around Garros uh, spots, unless there's like twenty PRs or something. <laughs> I mean, more like ten PRs, uh, which uh, usually doesn't happen. So um, that that's definitely quite huge, and should be able to um, allow him for for you know to, to to get another to get more opportunities in the clay season, especially. Which I, last year I don't think he did particularly well. At I mean, he won a challenger in in my um. March, not March, May. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, I think of the main tour, he was he just fell kind of flat every single time on the in the European clay season. Right. I think he won a he won a challenger in Ecuador. Right. Was that was that at the end? That was the, that was might have been at the end of last that's year. At the end. Yeah. That's yeah. at the end of the year. Yeah. He won back to back in Lima and um, Guayaquil, and in Mar in May he won Heilbronn over um, Andre, uh, Andre Martin now banned for. Uh, for doping, right? Yeah, because I remember he beat uh, he beat Chekinado in Korea, and th- that would have been yeah, at the end of the, year, the yeah. final, I think, in in Ecuador. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but this was this was a decent run, I guess, to beat Mahach and then beat. Uh, or, I, I mean, for Gilan as well to beat Mahach and then you know get to the final. Yeah, um, super stacked event, right? <laughs> You're gonna get uh, quarterfinals like Kubler Mahach. I mean, that would be crazy. Usually, you don't even get two of these guys playing a challenger, especially Kubler this year. But I think Mahach now, once he gets to, uh, because he was out injured last year between April and like beginning of August, so once he gets all these points now, he maybe also will be seen more on on the main tour rather than in challenger events. So. Yeah, the, the, this was definitely, especially the top half of the draw, Galan playing Vukic in the quarters, um, just an insane uh, quality of the field. But yeah, that's the, the, the biggest clay, uh, green clay event that we're, that we're going to get, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh yeah, while I was thinking of Altmaier, uh, I forgot to mention Musetti, of course, because uh, he went he, he went on a bit of a run in uh, Monte Carlo, beating uh, Kecmanovic and Nardi, three bagels in a row. <laughs> Against Kachwanovic and Nardi, and then coming back from six four four two, obviously against Djokovic. Uh, were you surprised by his level this tournament? Because uh, um, you know, I I certainly expected him to get to the round of sixteen and push Djokovic, uh, but I certainly didn't think he would 
end up winning, especially after the rain delay and just, uh, you know, based on the match they had at Roland Garros last year. Obviously, we know he can present Djokovic's problems, particularly Djokovic was coming back from a long layoff like this. And, you know, Monte Carlo traditionally hasn't been his best tournament in the last uh, seven or eight years since winning it in 2015. Only made the quarters twice. So I definitely expected uh, it to be very tricky for Novak. But uh, yeah, he was really able to showcase what makes him very good on clay. That's on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, Djokovic, when, when he was uh, poor against Gakko, I didn't really think that much of it. Because, yeah. as you said, um, first match since Dubai, even in Dubai, he wasn't really spot on from the get-go. So, um, yeah, I just figured it, it was going to take him a match or two. Um, I thought that he was probably going to beat Musetti quite easily, though, but most of that, I would say, was not really on the Italian, but just the fact that the elbow issue made it difficult for Djokovic. You know, the serve speed was down. Yeah, um, serve and forehand, yeah. Very wonky, yeah, like... Um, I remember at first, you know, I didn't really think that much of the arm sleep before I before I noticed that the service very uh, hindered. But I remember just noticing that his forehand technique is like all over the place. It happens sometimes with Djokovic. That's why you don't really think that maybe it's uh, it's an injury instantly. Uh, there, of course, is that match against uh, Del Potro in Shanghai where he just falls over almost after. Oh yeah, that really drunk game. In the second set. Yeah, that's that <laughs> game when he's, when he's drunk, yeah. So um, I didn't really think of it instantly when I saw that he was struggling with his forehead technique a bit. But yeah, over the course of the match, it was definitely very visible that the serve and forehand are just not potent as usual. And I think that led to this, um, to this loss. And uh, perhaps Musetti even kind of proved it with his very underwhelming showing in the quarters. Um, and maybe so I, I think most of that was down to the farms. I think okay. I think most of that, though, to be sure, was down to the so beating the world number one and then like the euphoric feeling and like not quite being able to recover properly. I did think he was going to lose to Sinner in straight sets, but uh, you know, hey, you know, farms becomes a thing when Musetti gets back on clay. You know, then it's actually then we can actually you know because I did think like at, towards the end of last year, like in winning Hamburg. Uh, doing some better things on indoors. I think he won Napoli as well. He beat Berrettini in straight sets yeah, to win that. Yeah, he won the titles. Yeah. yeah, and then so then he cracked the top 20. So I felt like, you know, at least uh, on, on the clay, I think he's a top 15 player. Well, uh, this year, um, maybe in this event, but before that... It was very rough for him, and um, Musetti kind of created this, I think, at the beginning of the year, the United Cup kind of created this uh, idea in her heads that Musetti... Oh, yeah, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't think much of that, because he didn't play anybody in the top 100. Yeah, exactly, but still, like, you thought, yeah, maybe, maybe you didn't, but it was like, okay, he got four wins, you know, his win-loss record were still at, like, four, five, four, six, but, you yeah, know, yeah. all the matches he won were against players who, well don't really feature at the ATP level at all. Some of them barely feature at the challenger level, in fact. And, um, you know, someone, for someone like Musetti, of course, it, it wasn't maybe that much of a challenge, but still somehow it created the illusion in my head that it's not that... It's not going as poorly for Musetti as it's seen. But yeah. when you actually think about it, yeah, I mean, the, the golden sweep, you just don't totally waste it. Perhaps some tough draws, but still... I don't think he does very well in altitude. 
um, city? Um, not all of these events are not are at altitude, though, right? Santiago is, but but mm-hmm. Rio, Buenos Aires, not not not, not really. It, it's it's a little faster. Like the South American play is is definitely maybe less um, appealing for Musetti. Last year, I think he even played Rotterdam instead, yeah. right? Uh, this year, switching. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's gonna uh, just do something exceptional in the clay season. But very often with Musetti, it's just hard to see him beating yeah. uh, all these other youngsters. Um, I, I don't think he's played them that much even, but that's mostly because he doesn't get to the stages of tournaments where where like they feature uh, a lot, right? And yeah, he just has so many tools in his repertoire that I think a lot of the time he doesn't really know what to choose, which is fair. Um, yeah. Definitely much tougher to play tennis like he does than it is to play if you're like Andre Rublev, Felix Ogrelyasi, some of yeah. that who just notes what your strengths are. Uh, they're sort of simple but they're they're excellent in, in their own right but with Musetti just always has to be creative um tries to you know to sort of maybe grind a bit and then find yeah. that back and down the line it's tough to play like this I don't know if it's if it's ever going to make it although initially in like 2020 when he had that Wawrinka Nishikori um the, you know that the, there was over Wawrinka Nishikori in Rome, and then also I think um, he won Florley uh, Challenger yes. for top four hundred players in, uh, I think it was six top one hundred wins in two weeks. Initially, I was super high on him because yeah, the guy is so flashy, right? The guy is so entertaining. You, you want to yes. watch him play. You want to watch him succeed. You want to watch him play humble, uh, like humble KTP five hundred all the time. But I. As time progresses, I just don't know if he's ever going to make it, and he definitely is far behind. Um, at least these guys like Alcaraz, Sinner, Luna, which kind of yeah, they kind of no, no. I, 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 I definitely put him a tier below for sure. It's just um, yeah, he, he he has some big wins on the clay. His I think his record is like seven and seven against top twenty players. So I think I you know I like him when he plays as an underdog against against. Uh, Good players on clay, let's say. <laughs> when he plays someone who he's supposed to beat, like outside the top, like, you know, some of these matches, like, I guess, against, uh, like, the players that he lost to in the Golden Swing, right? I mean, most of these matches were, like, 6-4, 6-4, and he just, he got, uh, his serve doesn't do nearly enough damage. His forehand is breaking down constantly, and so, uh, like, he, you know, he has all the variety and he has all the tools, but... It doesn't really like with him consistent. It's not like a consistent way of building points, you know. So I feel like he's uh, he, like, and then also his uh, his forehand potency goes way up for some reason when he plays on a slower clay court. Um, because like tennis abstract, they have this measure. It's like I don't know if you've seen. It's like forehand potency, backhand potency, and it's like out of a hundred. And it's like when he played Alcaraz in Hamburg, it was at like that was his best day on on the forehand. It was like. 15.1 or something. I have to look, for, I have to dig a little deeper into what those numbers are actually calculating. But, uh, 100. Yeah, it's. Yeah, he, he, he had 15 points. Okay, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. It's, yeah, it's it's not over 100. It's like. Oh. It was just the highest number. Like, it was 15.1, 15.2. I actually have to, like, look further into, like, what, mm-hmm. you know, why why it was so high, but. It definitely feels like he just has more time on his forehand on the clay, and maybe with the higher and on the backhand as well. Like, yeah, I mean, anytime he like like when he was coming up, he was basically useless on any surface that was faster than um, a slow hardcore in a couple of cores. Yeah, 
Uh, so he still improved a lot, and uh, particularly in the second half of last year, of course. But I feel like that game plan of just rushing his his every ground stroke is still very much in place on everything but clay, and sometimes even on clay. Uh, but, but you're right that the golden swing generally doesn't suit him as much as uh, as the clay. And then, of course, he uh, is the clay in Europe. And then he gets a few losses with India Wells, Miami, and then it's hard to kickstart himself again. And it's like all, all the time, right? But still very much different uh, is this year for him because um, it's actually kind of wild to think about this. But last year, he was like not even making main draws in in Madrid or something like that, right? Oh, right. So um, he actually could be facing this sort of danger again if he cannot produce. And if he cannot produce in Hamburg, if he cannot produce this clay court season, maybe next year he's going to be in that spots again. I mean, in these spots again, uh, it's kind of worrying, but he is not definitely not as um, constant in terms of um, you know, his presence at the top. We can't really be sure that in a year we're still going to have Lorenzo Mussetti in the top 20. And um, well, hopefully we will, be, we will, because I said, I mean, he's super entertaining, but. Um, just doesn't feel like a game that will ever bring in the most consistent results. Yeah, I guess the comparison would be Richard Gasquet, right? Because if your backhand is your best shot, uh, you gotta find other ways to win points. It's a tough way to like have a major result, but I think, uh, yeah, like I, I think he's still just figuring out how to use all his tools because like he has. It's almost like if you're building a smoothie, right? And you have all the all the ingredients, you have all the vegetables, you have all the, you know, you have, uh, you you're just missing like the foundation, which is, like, you know, you're just you're you're missing that blender to blend all the ingredients together. And Musetti uh, is kind of figuring that out as we go. Plus, I don't think he's like anywhere near what his physical development is. Because he's what he's like twenty one, like just turned twenty one. That's so. yeah. 2002. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of crazy though that his first um, main draw of a slab was the 2021 Roland Garros. That's pretty crazy to think. He was he, he was barely 19 at that point. And played the fourth round. Right? Yeah. Then he had the five setter with Chekanado, and then obviously the yeah two sets to love against Novak. But, uh, but yeah. Um, Hoping that he'll do something bigger for my farms thing. But yeah, you know, <laughs> I was starting to honestly lose hope in that acronym. So I was like, you know, maybe should I put Corda in there instead? But then Corda got injured and then... Whenever, you know, top five, then you can write a book <laughs> on, on farms. <laughs> but but no, I very much agree that like it's Sinner, Alcaraz, and Puna right now, for sure. Yeah, they're like, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Right. Right. <laughs> Especially when they're all in the top 10. It just makes it very easy to... Yeah. But uh, in terms of uh, in terms of Stuttgart next week, uh, are you looking forward to the the return of all those top WTA players? And obviously nine of the top 10. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's an insane event, frankly. And um, this is, of course, related to the fact that um, the top WTA is not really doing the best job in terms of organizing events. And there's just no other options for these women, these women to play. I mean, maybe they would have been in Stuttgart anyway. Uh, Stuttgart was always uh, very strong, right? So right. that's not really what I'm saying here. But um, like players who are not in the top 30 
they cannot play this event until, unless they're qualifying. But even the qualifying is really strong. And um, yeah, just just what are you going to do as a player ranked 50, 70 uh, on the WTA Tour right now? There's just nothing for you to play. You need to play um, some high uh, high point ITFs, but um, it's also, uh, well, you're then playing for uh, 125 points at the most. So it's, it's really quite terrible that this happens. But at the same time, this is why we get all of these insane first round, second round matchups. You can play a Grand Slam champion or a top 10 player in every single round. And and it's just insane. I mean, Krejcikova, uh, Samsonova, and then play Sabalenka. Come on. It's just absolutely impossible. Uh, but yeah, in general, this event, I think, always brings out some uh, pretty good quality. I really like the indoor clay combo. It's um, fast. It's um, more. It's a little faster than than what we get usually. But uh, for for my preferences, this is really nice. And I feel like in in the past, definitely the the Stuttgart, um, the Porsche something, Porsche Open or whatever, uh, has brought out uh, a lot of good stuff out of the players there. And of course, that is helped by the fact that the fields are so strong every single year. Yeah, and usually you, you see like a lot of the beginners do very well. Uh, like some of the fighter ball strikers. Yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. Like you know, the the people who don't you don't necessarily associate with having really great rolling girls results, like a Petra Kvitova or like last year uh, so well, right? Almost each Shviontek was probably the closest one to get Shviontek in the you know in the win streak. Yeah, uh, but Shviontek starting right away against most likely Shin Win Zeng is uh, that's a tough start. <laughs> Particularly coming back from country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been waiting for this uh, Kim Rajang uh, breakthrough, frankly. Like, this has been um, a bit a bit tiring at this point because, like, for a year, it seems like she's always very close to having a big event and then she loses, like, a match with Tapova right now in Miami um, or at the slams. She, I mean, she lost some, um, well, some matches that she really perhaps shouldn't have. Yeah. Um, she's playing Alicia Parks in the opening ground as well, which, uh, well, we both were very high on, but I don't know if um, if on indoor clay she can do it. Of course, it's still indoors, uh, but obviously either of these players will be a pretty tough test for Shiontek uh, right away, uh, both with huge serves. So, um, yeah, not, not a given that Shiontek is going to load if here, not a given that she's going to win it. And yeah, even last year when she was in this insane... Uh, this position, she, um, yeah, Samsonova was probably the the match where she struggled most during that 37 match win streak. So, even last year, it kind of proved that uh, itself that in uh, in Stuttgart, it's not a guarantee that she's going to be that dominant. Of course, she also won three other matches, but uh, well, um, I guess only the way she crashed Sabalenka was like mightily impressive. Um, otherwise, she she kind of had a pretty good draw as well. This time, it looks like the draw will be much much tougher. Uh, she's not gonna play Evelis in the in the second round. Um, the, 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 at least that's definitely not gonna happen. Yeah. Uh, do you think Shantek is winning Stuttgart, or do you have someone else, frankly, in here? Mind. Um. I mean, I, I I can tell you that I don't think she is gonna win, but who is going to? But I I just think if she is to play the first event after um yeah after coming back from the rib injury also with some mental question marks recently, there was just how um easily she's been I don't want to say giving up but maybe not really uh, fighting to uh, well fighting to her dash but in the matches and 
she either wins very easily or she just loses uh, just yeah. comfortably for the for the opponent. So if she has to play something like Kinvenjang, then um, it's looking at the draw, I don't know, Vekic or Sakario Pliskova, that could be an easier round maybe for her. But yeah, if she has to play the Bakin and Sabalenka back to back as well, <laughs> I don't really like her chances of the title, but of course she's one of the main contenders anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like all the top 10 players are in except for Pegula. Yeah, because Pegula, I think, was the only one who played Charleston, right? And yeah. they kind of swapped in this way that um, Pegula played Charleston and um, right. all the other years. So I'm still got, unless I'm maybe forgetting about, like, you know, Benji. Ben Chang. Yeah, I don't think she's here. But I don't know if Benji is in the top 10 right now. Even. Like, yeah, I think she's just outside the top 10. Yeah, she could be like 11, 12. Yeah, 11. Right. Yeah, this field is absolutely loaded. I mean, Ostapenko Redukhan was the first round. Uh, so is so is Goff and Kudermetova. The sickest one is probably yeah, Goff Kudermetova and Krejcikova Samsonova, right? That, yes, that's like the most uh, ranking wise. Probably it's even Goff Kudermetova, but uh, you could argue that maybe Krejcikova Samsonova is even stronger. But yeah. Kasatkina Badosa as well. Of course, Badosa isn't really that high in the rankings right now. She needed a wild card, but still, that's huge. Yeah, Goff is 6 and Kudermedova is 13th in the WTA rankings. So, we have 19, only 19 spot uh, places combined, I guess, and, and yet they meet in the in the opening round. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do this, at least uh, don't give the seeds bias, you know? At least... Uh... You know, maybe they could expand this drama a little bit because, yeah, it's especially if there's no other events. Yeah, especially if there's no other events. Uh, exactly. But, uh, yeah, that's it for the WTA, basically. And then next week, uh, we also have Barcelona and Munich and uh, Banjar Luka, which uh, I guess is the first time there's an event in ATP level in Bosnia. Um, In Bosnia, um, yeah, I don't think. Sarajevo probably didn't have one right, and that's probably the only other option. Vanilukans had a challenger for years, but um, I, I doubt there was a there was an ATP event in in there or in Sarajevo. Although, actually, um, no, it's, it's it, it was a challenger, okay, because I started googling Sarajevo ATP, but it was a challenger. So, so yeah, it would seem like that. Yeah, uh, and of course, there we have yeah, Rublev, Djokovic, Kecmanovic, Chorich. Lehechka's playing as well. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah I, I mean, we could get, you know, Vavrinka and Djokovic in the first round. Well, really? Yeah, because it's, it's Vavrinka against Luka Vanash. Mm-hmm. Uh, winner of that plays Djokovic. I haven't, like, looked at the draw even, um, but um, I can pull it up right now. But, wow, that that would be a great story. Vavrinka, Djokovic, and the... Right. Yeah. And then Djokovic is probably most likely to get a Serbian player. Well, actually, yeah, unless Grigor Barrera comes through yeah, in that section. usually isn't that good on clay, but I right. guess Lajovic, Krajinovic, they're also not in that great shape. I would love for Majedovic to do it. Um, Djokovic yes. is also funding his career, right? Right. And, and that would that would make for a very fun quarterfinal matchup. <laughs> uh, I, I would love it if, if Hamad did it, but um, I don't know how realistic it is. He had a very strong moment in March and then suffered, for, suffered a couple of disappointing losses, so not sure, but 
Uh, wow, Djokovic, Wawrinka, Djokovic, Vajedovic. I, I, I really want to see both of these. Uh, hopefully, the you know the players deliver. Yeah. Uh, you know, are you high on Luka Vernash as a as a prospect? Yeah. <laughs> just, just straight up no, honestly. Um, I mean, he has a he has this sort of a game where, of course, he's eighteen. He's he gets to the top one hundred. Right. Uh, super impressive. Uh, of course, he's extremely good for his age. But I think at the ATP Tour, it's going to be a struggle for him. Um, maybe on clay is his best chance. But in general, uh, I think just for now, he's just going to be overpowered very uh, frequently. Uh, he recently got his first um, ATP Tour win, right, in Ashtoril. But um, otherwise, uh, he has kind of struggled. And I just don't see it for him at the top level. Like, comparing, you know, these um, French guys, uh, Fins definitely has it and Panache. I just don't know if he's ever going to be able to establish that. Although I think that if he if he does a Chun Sang, which uh, by this I mean uh, if he gets to the ATP level winning a few challengers, but is somewhat, somewhat underpowered and then like only wins a few matches for six months, I think he would be like it would be easier for him to bounce back uh, than Sang. Sang is even now not winning challengers. I think Vanash would be more likely to return to this level to the to the ATP level if he ever gets um well if he ever gets thrown out of the top one hundred but I don't know. I, I still feel like it would require just so much development for him to um to be a reasonable like a contender at the highest um at the highest um possible categories of events. Uh, but of course, uh, I always say that uh, well, it's so much easier for uh, players with big weapons like to, to predict how good they are going to be. Uh, you would probably um, I, I wasn't watching tennis back then, or at least I wasn't aware enough. But like, you would never probably predict that Jean Simon is gonna be as good as he was, right, when he was coming up or something like that. So, or Diego Schwartzman. So. Um, yeah, I I have this you know I I have this a, a bit of an asterisk where I say that if he if he does indeed end up being a huge star, it's simply un, uh, unpredictable. But for for what for what we can see from him right now, not really. Yeah, uh, like from what I saw against, um, from what I've seen from him so far, I don't I'm not super high on him either. No, so. Yeah, there's that. Um, yeah, so I mean that 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 event overall. I think the biggest question mark for me will just be how is Djokovic's elbow, and um, that will kind of decide how he sort of progresses throughout this clay court season. Because basically, you know, we've seen the last two or three years. By the time Rome comes around, he's usually in the final or winning it, and. Um, and yeah, and then he sort of carries that form into Roland Garros, and then it probably gets harder for a quarterfinal onwards, but he kind of just builds up his peak physical fitness to peak there, I guess. Uh, yeah, and then and then of course we have Munich, where it's... Uh, I'm interested, I don't, I don't think Rona is going to play after Monte Carlo. Yeah, this is the final, it's possible. But he's defending the title. Uh, well, good venue for him, um, I think, with the of how the courts play. Well, but he could also, if, even if he plays, he could also be like a candidate to lose any. Like, if he plays Hanfan in the second round, that's not really that easy. Um, but, but yeah, it, it, it's it's possible that he will draw. I, I kind of, um, I mean, 
I kind of expected from Lublet as well. Yeah. And, and of course, Baliu cannot um, not be right. Right. Rublev is just going to keep going, I think. He's he's one of those. <laughs> I don't think he ever takes a break. So Yeah, he's like the Dominic team of old where he used to play uh, 60 matches before uh, Wimbledon <laughs> and then uh, suck during, during the second half of the year. Yeah. I think someone literally asked him in one of the ATP videos, like the questions, like, you know, do you ever yeah, yeah. go on a holiday? It's like, no, maybe only for five days. <laughs> but... Uh, um, uh, the other storyline for me will obviously be team, just uh, monitoring his progress because, uh, like most people, I so desperately want him to, you know, get back to monitoring his what? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that that's maybe a little too much, but um, I certainly felt a bit cheated when he played that much against Alice in Eskoril. You know, when he was saying that during practices, he felt that his forehand is coming back. You know, that his forehand has the spin, has the power again. And then he plays this sort of uh, oh, um, awful, I just had this sort of an awful performance. But um, yeah, with the draw he has here, I think he's very likely to get a few wins, right? Lestian has been um, also kind of injured recently, um, played Shelton in the story and wasn't really fine. Uh, he's left terrible form. So yeah, certainly a big chance for the team to, to get something going. I don't think he'll ever get back to his previous level but he can be a very successful tennis player and he even proved it um, at the end of last year right yeah I guess the curious part for me is just sort of what happened between Vienna and the start of this year yeah you know that that for me is like I almost think he might have been better off just playing through that period but it's difficult to say because at the same time I still thought that layoff would be a good thing for him to just, uh, yeah, a longer off-season. That longer layoff as well, right? Like, yeah. what else was he going to play? There, were, I think he was signed up. Like Paris. Sava Challenger and, and Paris. And yeah. that would be two more events. So it wasn't as that long a layoff, I guess. That's true. But, uh, yeah, anything else from this week? Or we covered it all? I guess I guess we did. Um, of course, there's also Barcelona, which I don't think we mentioned. Oh my goodness! Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Barcelona, obviously, the return of Alcaraz, and still not at all in the draw. But um, yeah, Setsipas. Obviously, I'm I'm curious to see whether uh, Setsipas can bounce back this week. I think that'll be something I'll keep my eye on because I mean, he's, he's the guy that really needs yeah matches, right? And also, he just needs to win a 500. <laughs> he's, uh, because he still doesn't go for it. Yeah. And he's lost, yeah, like, like, nine finals. He's playing Kachin and Brower. Kachin and Brower in the second round. That's super gettable. Uh, Shapoval, frankly, could have a chance against him. Yeah. I don't care about his form. Just in, in an individual match, he can always do it. Yeah. But if he can push through that, um, the opportunity is pretty nice, I think. Other than Sinner, even in his half. It's not really looking that threatening, so definitely a good event. He lost uh, for him to regain some confidence. He lost to Alcaraz here last year, right? Can't remember what yes, uh, the event was. Yes, in the quarters. In the quarter, because yeah. Senny was that crazy match when Carlos saved. Uh, yeah, against Divinor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had that insane forehand pass on one of those. Yeah. Catch points, yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, so. Alcaraz, I pretty much expect him to kind of pick up where he left off, to be honest. I don't think yeah. he really needs much time. 
Um, yeah, like him against uh, Tiafo or Fukina would be fun. And uh, honestly, every match of his is fun. But yeah, wow. I very much agree with this statement. Uh, definitely, um, I think he's the, he's a very worthy uh, successor of the biggest names we've had in tennis. Yeah, in that, yeah, he's just really entertaining whatever he does, basically. Uh, and yeah, I also kind of expect him to just, um, yeah, I just consider him the biggest favorite for Ron Garros at the moment. And um, just think if he plays Barcelona, Madrid, Rome, Paris, uh, like he's bound to win at least one of these events and maybe even more. Um, at, I, I wanted to say at least two, but <laughs> no, I, I know, I think it could happen. But the only thing is, is like I'm worried about his health. Like, is he going to be able to sustain? Barcelona, Madrid, Rome, and Paris, like all in the stretch. I didn't, he, right? he didn't run for um, yeah. he drew, right? But he like, maybe he can do something like this again. Um, just play Madrid, Barcelona, don't play Rome. Yeah. I almost want him to play Rome, though, instead of Madrid. He's already won Madrid, and then, you know, he can just. Rome is like more similar to. Well, you know, it's yeah, to yeah, but he's not yeah. going to do it, right? That's yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but you're you're very right that um of course the conditions are much uh, much different um between Madrid and Paris much much bigger jump. I I remember last year that um I was definitely also pushing um, pushing. What can I do? But uh, I remember being very happy that Shiontek has decided to withdraw from Madrid and just place Rome Paris yes. in May because that that definitely felt right the right move, especially after winning Stuttgart and. And yeah, you're, you're, you're very right that it would make more sense uh, to skip Madrid than Rome, but yeah, it's not happening if you're a Spaniard. Yeah, definitely. I And then also I'm curious about Yabing, of course, because since since Dallas, we've not really seen much of him, you know? Um, Is he the Alicia Parks of Winston's? Uh, <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if that's going to be the case because, of course, at the challenger level, he's done. Um, I mean, he's achieved great results other than indoors, but so far, uh, it, both India and West Miami were very disappointing. Uh, I don't know if, if if it was one of the slower courts in Miami, but it, they definitely made it look like that. But he just couldn't hit through any, yeah, either Davidovich, Fokina, or Schwartz, and if they had that tough match with Munar. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I, I definitely want to sort of. Um, see how he does first. Uh, he can have, he can be very very spot in his shot selection, which is something we mentioned about a different player at the beginning of the um, well of this recording. But um, he can be like really wild with how he chooses to play with his forehand. Just sometimes um, tries to be yeah. like a Del Potro, and on clay it could be a big issue. I think um, I, I've seen him play on clay like three, four times probably on me because, well, he, he hasn't been around for long on, oh. uh, on the tour, of course, and yeah. he had the three-year hiatus, but um, I just remember when he played on it a bit on his, uh, well, in, his, in the beginning of his run last year, um, he was doing fine, but it didn't really feel like you know, this was going to be the conditions when he was going to be best. Like, whenever he is indoors, whenever he can take it so early um when he can just drop that insane shot making like against like in Dallas against pretty much everyone um uh, that was such a strong ground and I mean he played like a top 20 guy for sure but um I just have to see if it's translatable and it would make him very similar to Alicia Parks in fact that indoors he, he she played like a top 20 top 50 player and uh yeah otherwise yeah. he's struggling for wins who we'll probably would get more than Parks at least looking at what we get what we are seeing from them for now 
but I'm not confident he'll beat Schwarzman. Although it would be fantastic to see him play Sinner. Just, yeah, watch him fa- uh, face another uh, high-quality player. He kind of showed he can beat them with Fritz, with Shapovalov, just making them look very ordinary compared to him. But of course, uh, Clay against Sinner, it's it's going to be a different step up in quality. If he can beat Schwarzman, even in Miami, it, it didn't really look great. Yep. And then you... Uh... The good thing for Parks is at least Stuttgart is indoors, <laughs> but it's on. Yeah, but she she already lost in qualies, right? So no, no, she's I she's think. in the main draw now. Yeah, because lucky as a lucky as yeah. a lucky loser. Yeah, but she plays. Looking at her easy loss against Korpach, I don't know if it's gonna help. No, uh, but but I was kind of excited when she beat Korpach yesterday. I was like, oh, either Clay, okay, yeah, yeah, she can she can do it. She can do it here. Um, but yeah, we'll see how she fares against Jank. Um. I guess either would be a tough matchup for Shviontek, but definitely, um, oh, Jenk has to be the favorite there. Yeah, and then of course I'm keeping my eye on Ben Shelton as well because, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, this sample size for him is so small. Yeah, ben Shelton. yeah, yeah, very winnable, McDonald's. Wow. Yeah, and you know, and even Rude, uh, you know, it's. Well, I mean, he's beaten him already, but in Clay, um, yeah, in Madrid, maybe in Madrid, right. Yeah, I mean, he lost to Dimitrov in Monte Carlo. And then before that, we, yeah, he played that match against team, but he was honestly very sick that day, so I don't really read too much into it. And also, yeah, I mean, this is the second match ever on the surface. Yeah. I mean, honestly, at this point, it's just, um, it's good he's playing this, and um, whatever the results are, it doesn't really matter. Uh, with the Australian Open quarters, he's like given himself a lot of leeway, and at least until January to basically suck during the clay court season. And for this, not to <laughs> but this is the right call for sure. Um, yeah, same thing like Nakashima did a couple of years back, or or yeah, like Fritz, I guess, um, just, just pushing himself to play more on clay. Because if, uh, maybe results wise, it wasn't really that important, and maybe he would have been better off. Um, I don't know yeah. what because well all the main three events are on clay but um, just not forcing himself to do that but you, you, you have to um, if Shelton and of course he thinks that he's going to play on the ATP tour throughout his career we all think that and um, yeah in the long run it's definitely good for him so yeah I, I don't really care about his results in, in this clay card season it's just important that he gets the practice there. yeah exactly and personally I would love to see an Alcaraz versus Davidovich Fokina quarterfinal that would be my uh, that would be my one because I mean like watching ADF and Indian Wells honestly probably the highlight of my day <laughs> when he played that match against Hatchinoff in Indian Wells and then yeah I mean he lost to him 2-2 two and two in Monte Carlo but man another guy who has all the shots but yeah the shot selection <laughs> because yeah he, he has that similar ability to push you behind the baseline and then throw in the drop shot and the athleticism is kind of off the charts when it's on. Yeah, that's why that Davidovich-Fukina Wu match we well seems so exciting in Indian Wells because they both right. struggle with the same things and they're yes. both like insanely talented in terms of their hand skills and etc. But when um, yeah, when they actually played, it was just people making countless errors while Davidovich-Fukina was defending just part well. Uh, but yeah, I I can get why you would uh, why you would want that. I'm. Honestly, not that big and uh, a Davidovich Pokina enjoyer, 
not really sure what's um what's stopping me from that, but I um, don't really watch his matches that much unless he play against a yeah a very exciting opponent, which Alcaraz would be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I think amongst all the players born in 1999, like I think he he might have the highest ceiling. We'll put it that way. Doesn't mean he's gonna do the best, but. Um, didn't you like put out a list of them or something? I did, yes. And I think Fokina was the most popular answer. So, um, and for for like no. it's like Fokina, you know, Divinor, Etcheverry, like Shapovalov, like uh, thing. Yeah, actually, other names. Uh, was wasn't even Wu there as well? Yeah, even Wu was there as well. Yeah, so I think I I I was probably vote for him just like in terms mm. of the sheer peak. But yeah, I can totally get Okina. I remember this list was like not that impressive. Like that there were no, no, yeah, stars of the game, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So I guess my my bear fear wasn't exactly uh, that rich in uh, at least stars of the game. But, you know, it, yeah. it is rich in tennis players, just like every single year. But... <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I think we're probably close shop here. Because we, we covered quite a bit of ground. Otherwise, we're in danger of doing like a six-hour podcast. <laughs> sure. We're already at like one uh, one point five probably, right? Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, if our listeners are still listening. We would be able to do it. But um, yeah, let's let's look at that ability. Yeah. I think if our listeners are still tuned in, like we've... Sure. That, that I consider that a pretty successful thing. Is they're still listening at an hour and a half in. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, Damien, this was fun and we should do this again. 100% uh, no, definitely up for it I, I get what she said about like um, if any listener is totally still bad it's good I often say at the end of the at the challenger shows that uh, like thanks for listening especially if you stayed until the very end I don't know how you do it so I wouldn't be able to yeah but, um, yeah if you manage to listen to until the end um, big big commiserations to you <laughs> yeah yeah um... And yeah, yeah, uh, you know, just tell your tell all your friends about this podcast, and yeah, uh, follow Damien on social media, and uh, yeah, where can we follow you on Twitter? What's your handle again? Uh, just my name, um, Damien Kust. So, um, yeah, yeah, easy, simple. Yep, pretty simple. And yeah, I think Owen and Andre will be back on the show as well soon. So yeah, stay tuned for that, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.